With no further ado, I'm going to begin, uh, this is week two of a three-part series that, we are, that we're in the midst of right now. Uh, the first one was called The Preparation, the second one the, today, The Purpose, and lastly, The Passion, uh, The Path to the Cross uh, is what the, the entire series is on. And so uh, when they ask me to speak on what is the purpose of Jesus, just briefly covered, the, what, what, why did Jesus come to earth? Uh, it's actually a huge topic me, to a guy who, like, information is very important to me, and I'm like, okay, how do I sum that up in 34.44 seconds? Um, that is a difficult task. When I was a kid, uh, when I was about 16, uh, my stepfather passed away, and he left me, he was a logger, uh, he left me all of his tools, and one of those tools that he left me was this thing. I have no idea what this thing is. I'm sure it was created with a wonderful purpose. I don't know what that purpose is. I've kind of looked at it. I can guess it maybe what it would be for, but I don't know what it's for. Uh, 16 to 47 now, 47 and a half, I still own this tool. It still hangs on my wall. I have no idea what purpose, it's kind of cool looking, I think. <laughs> But that's it, it's a conversation piece, I guess. Uh, some of us in the kingdom of God have added Jesus to our lives, but don't really know what the purpose is. What is really the purpose of Jesus in my life? Uh, some of us were born and raised in church, and so we were passed down from one relative to the next, uh, but we really don't know what is Jesus purpose in my life. I want to talk about that uh, this evening. Jesus' ministry purpose, and just in case you check out on me somewhere, I'm going to, I always like to give my thesis statement right up front. Um, so my thesis statement is basically from John 17. John 17, and it was, I don't know if this was a slide or not that was created. Uh, if not, John 17 verse 4 says, Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, verse 4, verse 6 says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me. And 8, verse 8 says, for I have given them the words that you gave me. So the work manifested his name and the works manifested his name and the words that is, to me, what Jesus' life purpose was all about. Uh, Jesus is very simple. Jesus' purpose was to re reveal the Father's name through his works and his words given to him by the Father. Okay, so that was pretty easy. I think that we are about wrapped it up. Uh, I do have a few other things, uh, unfortunately, that I would like to go on to. The works of Jesus, there are 37 recorded miracles in Jesus' life. Uh, most of them are miracles that he performed, but some of those, uh, his virgin birth, uh, would be one of those miracles. 37 recorded. Uh, John, in John's gospel, John says that there would not be enough room in the world to contain the books of everything that he did do. 
So we realize we have a very small fraction of what he really did do. But he does things like, well, his first miracle, we know it's his first miracle because it says it's his first miracle. Uh, he turns water into wine. He raised three people from the dead. I counted about 25 healings, and I threw in with that uh, uh, demoniacs that were freed from uh, the struggles that they were in. He calms the sea, catches large numbers of fish. I would like to have him along with me on some of the fishing trips I've gone on. Uh, he feeds 5,000, he feeds 4,000, and he walks on water. That's just to name a few. That's not an exhaustive list. But God, through all those miracles, he demonstrates his power over the creation. He demonstrates his power over death. He demonstrates his power over disease. He demonstrates his power over the spiritual world that is around us. God's his work was to demonstrate to us who he is. John 14, 12, John 14, 12 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Kind of a scary verse. Actually, if you look at the these, these amazing things that Jesus did in his earthly ministry, I guess I would say, what more could we do that would be bigger, right? Yeah. Than raise people from the dead, <laughs> to die and then raise yourself from the dead. <laughs> We're not gonna do greater things in the sense of quality, but he does say that we'll do greater things in the sense of quantity. And since from the time of Christ till now, we, there have been many more miracles than the ones recorded. But I also think there's another way to look at that. Um, I think that the conversion of a sinner is a greater work than any miracle. If I had the choice between being healed of some physical infirmity or being saved for all of eternity, I can tell you which one I would choose. That's the one I would choose. There's also only one that I can think of, at least right now, uh, when Jesus talks about the things that heaven gets excited about, that, that heaven experiences joy. Luke 15, four through seven. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, doth not leave the 99 in the wilderness? And then my point, I'll skip to the point. And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, should maybe pick a different one than King James, rejoicing. <laughs> and when he cometh home, calls together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, rejoice with me. It's like a party they're having, because he found a sheep. Yeah. One sheep. Joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. A party that happens over the miracle of a sinner coming to faith. That is our heartbeat and our prayer at this church, is that we would be a part of seeing people come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Not a uh, religious code that you follow, but a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. God is a big family kind of guy. 
uh, he doesn't stop at one or two children. He wants his family bigger and bigger and bigger. <clears throat> I'm going to jump to John 17, 6, which says, I have manifested your name to the people you gave me, which is another conversation I would love to talk about, uh, but he, God did give him specific people. Uh, there was, up until the time of Jesus, a limited revelation of who God was, right? I mean, people could figure it out from creation that, I mean, I look at creation and don't come up with evolution. It just doesn't work for me. That, that process does not work. I don't go, okay, my eyeball, how would this evolve? It doesn't make any sense to me. And I don't know if you follow me on that, but how would it begin? Like, if it didn't have the end result of seeing, why would it? Anyway, uh, creation, <laughs> one way, Mosaic revelation, Moses, the revelation of the law and all of that. The prophets would be another revelation of who God is. That's about it until the time of Christ, until Jesus came, emptied, Philippians 2 says, he emptied himself and became like us, a man, and revealed his character, revealed uh, his nature, revealed who his attitudes towards us, his attributes. It is easy for us to fool people with our works, right? I can make you think I'm a really good guy. But if you live with me, like my wife and my kids all have, they know that I have major faults, uh, that I have uh, things about my personality that would be good if they would change. Probably, they might say. Um, Jesus didn't just simply reveal his works. He came and lived amongst us because he wants us to know who personally he is. Jesus revealed to us through the life of Jesus a loving caring, righteous, and glorious God. So we talked about the works of Jesus. We've talked about the uh, manifesting God's name, the words of Jesus. There are, generally speaking, two different ways that, within the church anyway, that we communicate. Preaching and teaching. Preaching, the Definition, definition, I would say, would be, other synonyms would be proclaiming, heralding, announcing news to people about the gospel. Teaching would be explaining things about the gospel that people don't understand and instructing them how to live in light of it. I am more of, I would not claim to be a preacher. Uh, I, I'd realize God's called us to preach and teach, um, to me, the simple definition between the two is one you can do without doing a lot of spitting. Um, the other one requires massive amounts of water be sprayed out over the congregation. Um, I, am, I am more of a teacher than I would be a preacher, but God has called us to do both. And Jesus did both. The words that he communicated, he communicated through preaching, proclamation, as well as then teaching and explaining. 
Because the disciples would come over to him and go, oh, we don't get it. We don't understand what you're saying. Okay, let's sit down and let me, let me parse this out for you and tell you exactly what I am doing and what's happening here. I want to keep looking at Jesus' purpose uh, with a quick overview of the events of his ministry. Uh, beginning at his water and Holy Spirit baptism. Yes, I did say and his Holy Spirit baptism because I, I do believe that's what happened there. Matthew three sixteen through 17 in the ESV says, and when he was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I am a father who understands what it means to be proud of my kids. Uh, I get that. If you want to equate pride to God in this, if you can equate that human emotion. Uh, but God from heaven above cracks open the skies and said, this is my beloved son. Uh, I get that. I am very proud of my daughters. I have three daughters. One of them drove round trip wise 14 hours to be here tonight. So no pressure on me uh, to do a good job. Um, I am very proud of my girls. The one interesting thing that I note is up until this point, Jesus has never done a miracle. Uh, all miracles follow him being baptized in water and baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came on him in power and endued him with the same power that we have. Uh, because he emptied himself. Sorry, I get sidetracked on these things. Um, the, the point is, is that I as well am very proud. And his son, up until this point, did nothing to perform for his father. He just loved them. And I think that's very important for kids to know, that you as a father are not demanding that they perform so that they can get your love. God, display, God the Father displays that. Now, he had lived about 30 years. I'm not saying he was, you know, this was infant baptism. Um, I am saying that it was, he was 30 years old, but nothing, no miracles had been performed up to this point. Conversely, I am a son that has never heard those words from my father. Uh, I did not meet my biological father until I went and looked him up at 19 years old and then uh, tried to have a, a relationship. You know, it was kind of, I went and saw him. I just thought it was important that I uh, know where I came from, who this guy was. That pain from that God uses. God never wastes a pain in our lives. It has driven me to be a good father. It has driven me to make a change. Oh, my parents were divorced, or oh, I, my parents were alcoholics. or my, uh, It does not have to repeat itself in your life. You can make changes. Uh, sometimes our greatest purpose derives from past pains. Sometimes pains cause us to change. <clears throat> this is my beloved son. 
with whom I am well pleased. We read that and go, okay, well, that, that's cool. Actually, that is two completely separate messianic prophecies of the coming of the Messiah. This is my beloved son is the Old Testament messianic prophecy from Psalm 2, 6 and 7, where it says, yet I have set my king upon his holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, thou art my son. This day I have begotten thee. This is my beloved son is the fulfillment of a coronation of King David in that moment, but much far reaching. You go, oh, Dave, you're kind of making that, I mean, can you really draw that conclusion? Yeah, I really can draw that conclusion because the, the writers of the Gospels made that conclusion. So when Jews, the Jewish ear heard, this is my beloved son, they went, oh, whoa, we better pay attention. This is a messianic prophecy of the Messiah coming. The second half of it, so the first half, king, Messiah. The second half of it, with whom I am well pleased, is Isaiah 42.1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Behold my servant, in whom my soul delighteth. Once again, you might go, uh, Dave, you seem like you're stretching that. It's in the Gospels once again. They looked at this, uh, this verse, and they use it as a, uh, from Isaiah 42, talking about Jesus, the voice from heaven that they heard, and say, wow, this is, a, this is, this is Jesus is the Messiah. The interesting thing that I want to point out about that is that Isaiah 42 is from a section of about five prophecies by Isaiah called the Servant Poems. Jesus in the first half of it is presented as king. Jesus in the second half of what this proclamation over him is Jesus as our servant, as the servant of God. We serve an amazing servant king. A king in that he fulfills, he is God on earth. A servant that he came for me and you. He came to serve us that we could know him. Luke 4, 1 through 2 says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan right after his baptism and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. So 40 days, ate nothing. And the Bible brings a very profound revelation. And when they had ended, he was hungry. Yeah, no kidding. I have 40 days without food. That's not my point. Anyway, uh, my point is, uh, Mark 12 says it just a different, little bit different way than Luke. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Oh, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Oh, well, there's some, there's some theology in there to unpack uh, as well. But uh, let me just bring up uh, the point of 1 John 2 through 6, uh, which was what J.O. had mentioned it last week. Let me turn this the other way because there's part of this that is always, no, doesn't matter which way I turn it. Part of the is always <laughs> missing. Um <laughs> 1 John 2.16, for all that is in the word, 
all that is in the world, I'm guessing that probably says, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the word, world. I know, it's my first time, so. It's a borrowed iPad. Greg, thank you so much for this. This is in no way a reflection on you. It is my lack of preparation. No, no, no way, no way I'm gonna see it. Um, Jesus was tempted, the desires of the flesh. The devil said to him, this stone, uh, if you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdom of the world in a moment, the desire of the eyes and the pride of life. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, the pride of life. The same temptations that J.O., if you remember, J.O. talked about Genesis 3 when he came and tempted uh, Eve, the desire of the flesh, saying it was good for food, the desire of the eye, a delight to the eyes, and the pride of life, desired to make one wise. Satan has not changed in thousands of years of human existence. He still uses the exact same tactics. Uh, he still, he still uh, comes in the same way, just polishes it up a little bit differently. Temptation simply means, generally speaking, one of two things. One is it means to test, prove, or examine. The other would be seduce to do evil. Let me just talk about the first part of that uh, to prove us, to examine us. Jesus was tempted for 40 days in the wilderness, in the desert of Judea. I use, uh, in my work, I, oh, I uh, am a plumber, uh, full-time plumber, one-time preacher. Um, <laughs> the, uh, I am, I use a little device called a multi-tester, a multi-meter. Uh, why do I do that? Here, just probably three weeks ago, I uh, uh, was hooking up a dishwasher, and there was power down there, and I say to the contractor, hey, did you turn this power off? Yep, I turned it off. I never believe them when they say that, but I kind of believed him enough not to get up, walk out to my van, get the multi-tester, come in and test it. I just put my screwdriver across that, and guess what? It was not turned off. It was live. Proving, testing, examining <laughs> proves if we're alive, right? <laughs> God brings testing into our lives. Jesus was driven into the wilderness for a time of testing. The other thing I use my multimeter for is sometimes uh, if I'm working on a water heater, electric water heater, supposed to have 240 volts, I put my multi-tester on each leg of power coming in, and why isn't it working? Because it maybe lost one of the legs. It only has 110 or 115 volts. It doesn't have the other leg of power. Testing proves if we are safe. Uh, 
Testing proves if we're alive in Christ. Testing uh, brings us to the standard that God has for our lives. If I had never been tested, I wouldn't be up here on this platform speaking to you. Uh, J.O., the eldership, all of you would not, uh, would not allow that. Testing has come in my life. Testing is not a bad thing, is all I'm saying. That proving, testing, examining is not a bad thing. The purpose in Jesus' life was to prove that our lives can be transformed by the work of the cross and the Holy Spirit's power and indwelling. Jesus' first year of ministry <clears throat> is often called the year of obscurity. Uh, the recorded uh, ministry that he did during that time was he began selecting his first disciples. He turns water into wine, his first miracle. He cleanses the temple in Jerusalem at Passover. He has an encounter with Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, which is an interesting story. I guess this is a sidelight as well. God reveals, one of the first people that he reveals himself to as the Messiah is the woman in Samaria. A woman in Samaria. Both of those, that's like double negatives in that time. Uh, also, interestingly, the first person that Jesus reveals him to at his resurrection is a woman. There's no gender uh, Christianity has done more to promote gender equality than anything else. Anyway, um, the, the, my point is uh, that Jesus' mission statement uh, during this time, he, during this first year of ministry, he shares this verse, which I want to read to you, if I can see it all. Mm -hmm. um, Luke 4, 18 and 19, did I, did I give you that one? Oh, hallelujah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Remember water baptism? When he, words come from heaven, the anointed, he anointed me proclaiming good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To me, to me, that is Jesus' mission statement. I do want to read it to you out of the King James because I do like the King James, and, and there is a slight difference in the King James. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Uh, I don't know what translation that was, uh, ESV, I'm guessing, but uh, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. A lot of preaching is going on in Jesus' life, right? Jesus preached a lot, uh, but also healing. He came to heal the brokenhearted. The King James is slightly different than the ESV in that that phrase is in there. You won't find it in... in a lot of other translations uh, because uh, the King James uses Textus Receptus. Uh, anyway, um, that is different. That's a different subject too. Um, the, 
Jesus' mission statement is preaching the word of God in a radically different way than it was ever expected to come. The Jews had the, an idea of who the Messiah was going to be. And Jesus reveals himself far differently. This is a, uh, this, this is a quote from Isaiah 61 that Jesus fulfills in the reading in a synagogue. He stands up before all of the Jews of that time and says, hey, I'm coming. This is, this is who I am, the Messiah. I am fulfilling a prophecy from Isaiah. The second year of ministry is the, his, really his year of popularity. It's marked by public signs and wonders, miracles, and ministry. Uh, he heals Peter's mother, calms the storm, resurrects Jairus' daughter. Uh, and to me, he, one of the most important things he does is teach the Sermon on the Mount. His popularity swells, attracting crowds all over Galilee, Decapolis, and Judea. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus defines the coming kingdom of God, or heaven, if you're reading in Matthew, same thing, um, but the kingdom of God, its value system, and who will be under its kingship. The Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 6, the Beatitudes kicks off this Sermon on the Mount. And this is, we read this stuff and we don't get it. This is like radically different to them. And it, I'll be honest with you, the Beatitudes, uh, they challenge me. <laughs> Let me just read uh, Luke's, Luke 6, 20 through 26. I'll, I'll shorten it. Blessed are you who are poor, hungry now, weep now. Uh, blessed are you when people hate you. Blessed are you when you weep. And then he gives four woes. Uh, but woe to you who are rich, who are full now, who laugh now, and when people, and when people speak well of you. Luke's gospel really takes a more of a social economic look at the Beatitudes. Um, nonetheless, I am challenged by that. Blessed are you simply means happy are you. Happy are you if you're poor. That doesn't sound happy to me. Does it to you? Do you sound happy when you're poor? Do you sound happy when you're weeping? Generally, it's saying, happy are you when you, your eyes are on something bigger than, greater than physical, earthly comforts. That is radical to me that that was the gospel that Jesus is preaching. Matthew, uh, Matthew's Beatitudes are a little, Matthew tends to spiritualize the Beatitudes a little bit more, and there are eight, uh, but follow this is similar, blessed are the poor, those who mourn, the meek, hungry and thirsty, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, uh, and blessed are those who are persecuted, persecuted for righteousness' sake. Jesus did not come for people who have got it all together. Jesus did not come for the people who uh, were simply interested in looking religious. I mean, he, he came for them, 
if they're willing to change their heart and willing to be needy. Uh, I have been, I got, I came to faith, I would say, when I was about 19 years old. One of the biggest challenges of a Christian, a person who's been a Christian for, say, 30 years, is acting like you have it all together. Acting like you know what's going on and the danger in it, which Craig pointed out here a few weeks ago in his message, which I thought was a powerful point, is that when you've been a Christian for 30 years, it is kind of hard to humble yourself and say, yeah, I am still struggling with this sin in my life. I'm still dealing with these issues in my life. Jesus says, blessed are you who do not care, who care more about being right with God than you do about what other people think about you. That is a powerful concept to me, that I care more about uh, loving Jesus and being uh, honest with my relationship with him than I care about looking good to all of you guys. Third year of ministry, year of opposition. Uh, it's not too surprising that he faced a year of opposition. John 6, 53 through 56, I won't take time to read the whole thing, but truly, truly I say unto you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Jesus didn't preach soft lies. He did not sugarcoat, candy coat uh, the gospel. This is a radical teaching. It's not up there, never mind. This is a radical teaching that Jesus promoted. Uh, John 6, a couple verses below that, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. The year of obscurity, opposition, excuse me, the, the year of opposition, because Jesus kind of pulled the gloves off and says, okay, you want to act fake? Here's the real gospel. Um, it is not a gospel that is, uh, that is for people who just want to play church. It is a gospel for people who want to have a personal relationship with the Savior of their soul, the one who wants to transform their life and bring freedom and bring transparency. So how does Jesus' purpose relate to us? We are called to radic a radically new life, having accomplished the work. We are called to good works. We're called to them. They don't provide salvation for us, but we're still called to them, Ephesians tells us. Paul tells us in Ephesians. Uh, I have manifested your name. We are to manifest the name of God, to make his glory known. That, so when you're at work, when you're at home, when you're wherever, you're a glory manifester, God's glory. And lastly, uh, for I have given them the words that you gave me. In the, in our, the power of our words is immense. The power of what we present and how we portray 
to our children, to our wife, to our coworkers. The calling of Jesus was to the work, manifestation of the Father, and the words that Jesus gave them.